0: with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p.com/conspiracy.
1: Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new money maker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy, Taught to men for their secrets, and sometimes, their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. On June 7th, 2018, tattoo artist, makeup mogul, and television personality Kat Von D took to Instagram to share a candid picture of her baby bump. The photo was accompanied by a caption about her pregnancy, including the fact that she intended to raise her child without vaccinations.
0: Within minutes, the photo was flooded with comments. Some attacked her ignorance, while others defended her courage. After a week-long media frenzy, Kat Von D's products were being threatened with a boycott. She again took to Instagram and posted, quote, "'My husband and I are not anti-vaxxers.' Just because we have hesitancies and valid concerns about injecting our baby with specific chemicals and toxins does not mean we are anti-anything, end quote. Through with talking about the matter, she turned off comments for the post.
1: Unfortunately, muting people's opinions on vaccines isn't as easy as just clicking a button. Vaccines have been surrounded by numerous scandals since their invention two centuries ago. A vast majority of doctors and scientists swear that they're perfectly safe. Many governments mandate their citizens get them by law. But there's always been a percentage of the population that questions what's really inside the syringe.
0: And they might have good reason
1: to be afraid.
0: Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly
1: Brandenburg.
0: And neither of us are conspiracy theorists.
1: But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Many of you have asked how you can help support the show, and if you enjoyed the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening.
1: Today, we're investigating the truth about vaccines. Ever since the smallpox vaccine was created in the 19th century, rumors, half-truths, and misinformation have swirled about how safe vaccination really is.
0: According to scientists, doctors, pharmaceutical companies, government bodies, the CDC, FDA, WHO, basically every authority on medicine, every vaccine publicly available is proven to be safe and effective. All they contain are a harmless bit of weakened virus, saline, and a trace amount of chemicals to ensure effectiveness. But not everyone trusts the medical establishment to give us the facts.
1: Given the deaths and accidents that have been tied to vaccines over the past 60 years, those fears aren't completely unfounded. But especially since the advent of the Internet, there's been so much conflicting information spread about vaccines, it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction.
0: Today, we're going to look at the scientific and historical facts surrounding vaccines, including the Cutter incident, a tragic accident where contaminated polio vaccines ended up doing more harm than good.
1: Next week, we'll examine some of the more intriguing conspiracy theories surrounding vaccines and see if there's any credibility to the claims that they're more dangerous than advertised.
0: It's definitely a complicated subject. Many conspiracy theorists refuse to believe the hard facts about vaccines because those facts are provided by companies and government agencies that profit from
1: vaccinations in the first place. But before we can dispute the facts, we need to know what they are. Let's look at the official story of what vaccines are and what led to some of their most infamous controversies.
0: Vaccines became common in the 1950s, at the height of the polio outbreak in the United States. But the concept of vaccination has actually been in use since 1000 C.E., Back then, Buddhist monks in China and India used to expose their communities to smallpox by cutting a mark into a person's
1: shoulder and then rubbing a bit of smallpox scab into the wound. While that sounds a bit gross to our modern sensibilities, it was effective at inoculating the people most vulnerable to the deadly sickness. The first vaccination injection was performed in 1798 when Edward Jenner, commonly known as the founder of vaccinology, injected a bit of cowpox virus to inoculate a child from smallpox.
0: If you've never been to medical school, or even if you have, you may not be entirely sure how exactly vaccines work. The difficulty of breaking down the science of vaccination into layman's terms could be part of the reason for their controversial public perception.
1: Vaccines vary a bit depending on what virus they're battling, but there are two chemicals that are used in nearly every modern vaccine formula, formaldehyde and aluminum.
0: Formaldehyde is a colorless, flammable gas that naturally occurs in nature and even in our bodies. While it's considered dangerous in large doses, according to the EPA, small amounts of formaldehyde are found in everyday items like composite wood, glues, insulation, cosmetics, and
1: even dishwashing liquids. Aluminum is Earth's second most abundant metallic element, and due to it being in nearly everything in our environment, it's used in a wide variety of products that you're probably touching right now.
0: Like formaldehyde, in large doses, aluminum is toxic to any living thing. But according to the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry website, quote, you will always have some exposure to low levels of aluminum from eating food, drinking water, and breathing air, end quote.
1: So as long as you're living on the planet Earth, you're going to be exposed to formaldehyde and aluminum all day every day.
0: The amount of ingredients like formaldehyde and aluminum used in vaccines is typically less than one milligram, well within the range of what's considered safe for human consumption.
1: The process for manufacturing a vaccine is fairly standard. First, they take a live bit of the virus from a disease like the mumps and weaken it with formaldehyde. Formaldehyde is actually so effective at this process that sometimes it kills the virus entirely, thus making the vaccine ineffective.
0: The aluminum is used as an irritant to draw your immune system's attention to the needle's point of entry. Once there, antibodies will begin fighting off the weakened bit of virus contained in the vaccine.
1: Every healthy person's body has a pretty great immune system that's evolved to fight off common diseases, like the common cold or stomach flu. But when it comes to more uncommon and serious diseases like whooping cough, polio, and rubella, the body has to learn how to fight them.
0: By injecting a bit of a weakened virus into the body, it teaches your immune system how to fight the virus, should it enter your body again in full strength.
1: A vaccine is like teaching your body advanced self-defense. You get the shot... Your immune system is programmed to fight the virus injected and you may or may not have to endure some mild adverse reactions as your immune system responds.
0: If things don't go to plan, then those adverse reactions can be more severe, even fatal.
1: Death is not a common side effect of vaccines, but it has happened on more than one occasion in the modern medical era.
0: If vaccines have been responsible for deaths, I can see why some people can have concerns about them
1: you're probably onto something there but weighing the few lives taken by vaccines compared to the millions taken by deadly diseases like smallpox it seems the reward far outweighs the risk here mhm well let's dig into the history
0: of modern vaccination and see if we can find some answers about exactly how much vaccines have helped
1: and hurt us if we're going to do that we have to start in the 1930s when the biggest disease gripping the united states was polio Polio is transmitted through contaminated food and water. Once inside the body, it attacks the brain and spinal cord, eventually causing paralysis or, in extreme cases, death. While polio could strike anyone at any time, the most susceptible are children under five years old.
0: By the mid-1930s, polio rates were as high as close to 10,000 cases across America per year, Without a cure, the infection rates kept climbing, and by 1952, over 55,000 polio cases were reported in the U.S. in one year. In that year alone, polio claimed over 3,000 American lives, many of whom were children.
1: Back then, all parents could do was hope that their child wasn't one of the unlucky ones infected. If they were, the best medicine could do was manage the disease with things like leg braces and iron lungs. With the nation in panic and thousands
0: dying every year, it was clear that something had to be done to combat this growing
1: crisis. Enter Dr. Jonas Salk. Starting in 1947, he began actively working on a polio vaccine. He did have a bit of competition in another doctor named Albert Sabin. Both men
0: knew that whoever came up with an effective polio vaccine first would have their name etched into history. While both doctors were interested in the common good, they were equally known for having quite the ego.
1: Both men had the same goal of creating a vaccine, but their methods were drastically different. Dr. Salk's vaccine would be administered as a shot containing a bit of weakened inactive polio virus, similar to the vaccines we use today. Dr. Sabin's vaccine was delivered orally by way of a sugar cube that contained a bit of live or active polio virus.
0: Dr. Salk was much younger than Dr. Sabin, and when he started his research, Dr. Sabin had already been working on his own vaccine for a few years. But Dr. Salk was working to catch up with incredible speed, and the elder Dr. Sabin began to grow concerned.
1: Dr. Sabin believed that Dr. Salk wasn't putting enough time and thought into his vaccine. His injection method was exceedingly simple, and he should have been taking a more methodical and safety focused approach to his research. Dr. Sabin once quipped of Dr. Salk's shot vaccine You could go into the kitchen and do what he did, end quote. Dr. Salk, on the other hand, preferred effectiveness
0: over innovation, and he had no problem with working fast. He often viewed Dr. Sabin's advice as a covert attempt to derail his inevitable success.
1: After many years of work, there was eventually a winner in the race for science superstardom. On April 12, 1955, Dr. Salk announced at a press conference that his injection based vaccine had been proven safe effective, and was ready for mass manufacturing and distribution. He was so confident in his creation, he even gave it to his own sons. That
0: confidence was infectious, and almost overnight, Dr. Salk was a national hero. Not only because he invented a polio vaccine, but also because he didn't patent it, meaning that there would be fewer hoops to jump through for other scientists and pharmaceutical companies on their way to manufacturing and distributing the vaccine.
1: Dr. Salk wasn't particularly concerned with making money from his discovery. The public service and the public fame were enough. But there were a lot of big pharmaceutical companies that saw vaccination as an opportunity for profit. That's
0: right. Almost immediately after Dr. Salk's announcement, labs across the country began making the vaccine. One of those labs was a California-based company named Cutter Laboratories, What followed turned the polio vaccination from a national triumph to a national tragedy.
1: The so-called Cutter Incident is considered to be one of the worst pharmaceutical disasters in U.S. history. It created nearly as much fear in the American public as polio itself.
0: We'll see what happened after a quick break. Now back to the story.
1: Many of the conspiracy theories surrounding vaccines seem to circle around the idea that nefarious villains within the government are putting things into them that don't belong. Vaccine conspiracy theorists often point back to one incident from the mid-1950s as proof that vaccines aren't always as safe and effective as we're told.
0: Let's take a deep dive into what happened in what's known as the Cutter Incident and see if we can determine if what happened was intentional or just human error.
1: As we noted, with all the excitement surrounding Dr. Salk's vaccine, everyone was in a rush to make it and receive it. While the vaccine was working in the vast majority of cases, something odd was happening to more than 200,000 kids across many states in the West and Midwest. Within days of receiving the vaccine, they began to have an adverse
0: reaction. The reaction was symptoms of polio. Within a month of Dr. Salk's triumphant moment, more than 40,000 kids were confirmed to have been infected with polio after receiving a vaccination.
1: Over 200 of those children became paralyzed to varying degrees, and when all was said and done, 10 had died.
0: The country's tears of joy over a polio vaccine quickly turned into anger, and the rage could only be satisfied with answers. People wanted to know how something like this could happen when the medical establishment had promised that the vaccination was completely
1: safe. The scandal was front-page news every day on The New York Times for over a month. Newspapers nationwide covered the story in an attempt to determine if children in their communities were affected by one of these dangerous vaccines. The answers would finally come when an enraged U.S. Congress opened an investigation into the incident.
0: Almost immediately after finding out the vaccine was causing polio, the Federal Center for Disease Control created a polio surveillance unit to monitor new polio cases post-vaccination around the country. They determined that all the polio cases could be linked back to vaccines from Cutter Laboratories in California. The U.S. Public Health Service dispatched
1: a team to investigate. It was clear that no matter what investigators found, there was no going back from this high profile blunder. In the first few months after news about the Cutter incident broke, the once eager public had become hesitant to vaccinate their children. Once the government officials pinpointed that the polio-laced vaccines were manufactured by Cutter, they made a rapid effort to remove all Cutter-manufactured vaccines from the market. That helped to quell
0: some of the general public's concerns, but many people still believe that vaccines from other manufacturers could be dangerous as well. Public mistrust would be something vaccines would have to battle against forever after this moment.
1: While conducting the investigation into Cutter Laboratories, health officials uncovered some troubling reasons for the catastrophe. One of the most damning things found was that during early phases of production, Cutter Laboratories didn't make the required reports to government officials after batches of their vaccines failed internal testing. If they discovered that a vaccine batch didn't work properly, they quietly poured it down the drain and tried again.
0: Also, while manufacturing the vaccine for the market, they put a little too much trust in a vendor. The poliovirus they received that was supposed to be weakened was actually fully active. Remember when we said that to weaken the virus, scientists exposed the virus to formaldehyde?
1: Well, during the process, the poliovirus clumped together as it passed through a glass filter, and not all of it got touched with the formaldehyde meaning that the vaccine contained some very active and dangerous strains of polio.
0: With the benefit of hindsight, it seems like the errors were caused by the speed of production.
1: After decades of polio ravaging the country, killing thousands of children per year, who could blame manufacturers for rushing to the market?
0: Maybe that assessment is true, but there was plenty of blame to go around. The fallout of the Cutter incident was massive.
1: First, it led to lawsuits from the parents of children affected. But parents that couldn't afford litigation against a large company received very little justice. At the time, there was no system in place to compensate people who were harmed by the vaccine, so the cases were settled in regular civil court. One family that
0: did sue successfully were the Gottsdankers from Santa Barbara, California, In January of 1958, they won a landmark verdict of over $147,000 against Cutter Laboratories. With inflation, that would be over
1: $1.2 million today. That win set a precedent for future lawsuits against drug makers, as the jury found that while Cutter Laboratories wasn't negligent, they broke a breach of warranty by claiming their vaccine was safe when it wasn't.
0: The verdict opened a door for many other people anxious to sue pharmaceutical manufacturers for injuries they received from their allegedly safe products.
1: For those people unable to sue and gain financial retribution against Cutter Laboratories, they began demanding the next best thing.
0: Soon after the Cutter incident, the federal government temporarily halted their mass vaccination plan and became more involved in the oversight of vaccine manufacturing. In the wake of this national tragedy, they promised to make vaccines much safer in the future.
1: Part of the government's commitment to calming the public's concerns about vaccines was to call upon Dr. Sabin, who had successfully tested his oral polio vaccine in 1961, six years after Dr. Salk's vaccine hit the market.
0: With Dr. Salk's reputation tarnished after the Cutter incident, By 1962, the preferred method of vaccination against polio became Dr. Sabin's sugar cube method. Dr. Sabin's oral was so popular that it became the preferred method of vaccination in the U.S. from the 60s until the
1: early 90s. Dr. Sabin had long contended that his methodical approach to creating a vaccine that went through the gut was safer. And after the dangers of Salk's method became apparent with the cutter incident, it seemed like he was right.
0: It's worth noting that while Dr. Sabin's oral vaccine method was effective, it wasn't perfect either. It was reported to cause polio in one person out of every 750,000 who received it.
1: Compared to the number of lives saved by the vaccine and the number of deaths and injuries caused by the Cutter incident, most people would consider that track record pretty successful.
0: But after the cutter incident in 1955, Dr. Salk's shot method of vaccination wasn't entirely discontinued. Pharmaceutical companies began to roll out more vaccines for a wide variety of diseases beyond polio. And as the popularity of vaccines grew, the number of adverse reactions began to increase as well.
1: In the mid-20th century, there were at least two other major incidents where inoculation wasn't all the public got in their vaccination shot.
0: These aren't conspiracy theories. These are all well-documented incidents, as Big Pharma likes to brand them, that are listed on the CDC's website.
1: From 1955 to 1963, There were some polio vaccines on the market that were contaminated with SV-40, which stands for simian virus 40.
0: Simian as in monkey. Now, you may be asking yourself, what ramifications a monkey virus has on the human body? We'll we'll cover that in part two. For now, we'll give you a quick rundown of the SV-40 incident.
1: SV-40 was first discovered in 1960. It's a virus that occurs naturally in some species of monkeys, and in certain cases, it can cause some animals to develop lesions in their kidneys and brains.
0: Less than a year after its discovery in 1960, SV40 was detected in both the oral and injected versions of some strains of the polio vaccine. The virus apparently got into the vaccines during their manufacturing period throughout the
1: 1950s. In order to quickly grow a large amount of poliovirus for use in the vaccines, scientists had been using monkey kidney cells in the manufacturing process. Some of those cells contained SV40, and the virus subsequently went into the vaccines that were administered to over 98 million Americans.
0: Today, SV-40 is generally considered harmless to humans, but since it had only just been discovered at the time, no one was sure what effects it could have on the people infected with it.
1: When the U.S. government found out that some polio vaccines were contaminated with SV-40 in 1961, they issued a regulation requiring that all new stocks of polio vaccines be SV-40 free. But the existing stocks were not recalled, and the SV40-contaminated vaccines continued to be used until 1963.
0: If you got a polio vaccine between 1955 and 1963, there is a high likelihood that you have SV40 floating in your system right now. If you do, there's not much reason to fret, and it's not known to cause tumors in humans as it does in other animals.
1: There's something else to add, though. S.V. 40 has been identified in people born in the 1980s and 1990s. This implies that the virus can be spread human to human, even to people who never received the contaminated vaccine. Whatever effects S.V. 40 may have, the virus may be with our species forever.
0: Since the S.V. 40 incident hit the headlines, the CDC and most scientists have contended that the virus is virtually harmless to humans, But in the same breath, they also admit that more study is needed. And it's that small admission that has stirred the pot for all kinds of conspiracy theories since 1963.
1: Fifteen years after the SV40 incident, there was another major case of vaccinations going awry. In 1976, around 450 people injected with the vaccine for swine flu developed Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, GBS is a neurological disorder that can cause intestinal issues and, in extreme cases, paralysis.
0: It's unknown to this day what caused people who received the shot to develop GBS. But what's especially striking about this incident is that it was completely avoidable. At the time, U.S. lawmakers were afraid that the newly discovered swine flu would become an epidemic on the level of the Spanish flu of the early 1900s. In their panic to avoid a widespread epidemic,
1: they encouraged mass vaccinations for the entire population. But the dreaded swine flu failed to materialize as predicted. It seemed the push for mass vaccination was entirely unneeded. No one died from swine flu, but as a result of the vaccination craze, 450 people developed GBS.
0: The SV40 and GBS incidents aside, even more adverse reactions were on the rise as pharmaceutical companies began to manufacture more varieties of vaccines. The diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, or DTaP vaccinations, carry a risk of seizures, and the chickenpox vaccine is known to cause meningitis. These are extreme and rare side effects, but possibilities nonetheless.
1: With incidents of those adverse reactions, more lawsuits began to fly at the pharmaceutical industry. By the mid-1980s, manufacturers of the DTaP vaccine alone had nearly 300 lawsuits filed against them. Remember. From the moment the jury awarded that $147,000 settlement against Cutter Laboratories back in 1958, the law usually favored the plaintiffs when they suffered from vaccines. It was at about this time that the pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers began crying foul. If they kept being forced to hand out large sums of money due to lawsuits, they claimed it would bankrupt them. If the companies went bankrupt their medications and vaccinations would disappear entirely, potentially creating another public health crisis. Well, oh, when it's framed that way, I guess that's a pretty good argument.
0: You know, the pharmaceutical industry is pretty good at framing things in a context that favors them.
1: Hold on to that thought. With a potential financial crisis on their hands, Big Pharma began looking to Congress to find a solution.
0: Several major pharmaceutical companies and vaccine manufacturers began lobbying Congress members for legislation that would reduce their legal and financial liability. Some people contend that part of their lobbying effort included telling lawmakers that they would stop making vaccines altogether unless something was done to satisfy
1: their woes. After years of leaning into the ears of Capitol Hill, in 1986, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program was created.
0: The VICP was bundled up in a health bill that was signed into law by President Reagan on November 14, 1986.
1: November 1986 was a big month for Reagan. At the time, the media was asking a lot of questions about the brewing Iran-Contra scandal, where the White House was accused of covertly trading weapons for hostages.
0: With the media obsessing about the Iran-Contra scandal, could that have been the perfect time to sign into law something as controversial as the VICP without drawing
1: too much attention? Maybe. But let's examine what the VICP is before we go too far down that rabbit hole. Benefit.gov describes the program as such. Quote, The National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, VICP, is a federal no-fault system designed to compensate individuals or families of individuals who have been injured by childhood vaccines, whether administered in the private or public sector. The VICP is a no-fault alternative to the traditional tort system for resolving vaccine injury claims that provides compensation to people found to be injured by certain vaccines. The U.S. Court of Federal Claims decides who will be paid."
0: Distilled down, the VICP created vaccine courts that limited damages to people injured by vaccines. The program added a tax to all vaccine sales, which went into a fund used to pay damages to anyone who might be injured by vaccines.
1: This let pharmaceutical companies completely off the hook for any fault. Instead of having to pay out of their own pockets when people were harmed by their vaccines, the federal government would shoulder the cost.
0: It's worth noting that when President Reagan signed the bill into law, he had concerns about it himself. An article in the New York Times reported that the president had approved the bill with, quote, mixed feelings because he had serious reservations about the vaccine compensation
1: plan. He wasn't the only one. Vaccine courts have been a point of contention for the public ever since their creation. And the controversy only grew as the number of vaccines that were recommended for children increased throughout the 80s and 90s.
0: With the spread of vaccinations, the United States and many developed countries around the world began to get a strong foothold in eliminating deadly diseases like smallpox, mumps, measles, rubella, and polio. The population was healthier than ever, and vaccines took a lot of the
1: credit. It took nearly 40 years and a lot of hard work on both the medical and public relations fronts, but the vast majority of the world population now had no reason to fear vaccinations. With the days of the Cutter incident all but forgotten, and a federal vaccine court to protect against litigation, the drug companies were in the golden age of vaccine manufacturing.
0: With that kind of confidence... Children began getting pumped with vaccines from the time they were an hour old to age 18. There was so much trust in vaccines that they soon became required for travel, public service, and in many places, mandatory to attend public
1: school. Today, if you follow the recommended vaccination schedule on the CDC's website, by the time a child reaches adulthood, they could receive over 50 doses of various vaccines.
0: that sounds like an awful lot.
1: It does. But mandatory vaccines became easier to swallow when the narrative spread that vaccination was for the public good.
0: As vaccines became more popular, the term herd immunity started to creep into conversation. The general principle is that some people can't get vaccines because, due to their age or illnesses like cancer, their immune systems aren't strong enough to fight off even a weakened strain of a virus.
1: So in a large population, as long as every other healthy person gets a vaccine, it greatly reduces the risk of the vulnerable, unvaccinated person catching the disease. Think of it as a sort of quarantine in reverse. There are some
0: more complexities to herd immunity and some reasons to question how effective it really is, but we'll cover that in the next episode.
1: In 1997, the controversies surrounding vaccines had all but faded in America— But across the pond in England, a team of doctors was working on a study to investigate the rise of gastrointestinal illness and regressive developmental disorders in children.
0: When published, that study would rock the pharmaceutical industry and once again inject fear and paranoia into the public.
1: But this time, thanks to the internet, medical professionals and pharmaceutical conglomerates found it nearly impossible to calm people's concerns. A mistrust was born that was so powerful, it continues to this day.
0: More on this after a quick break. Now back to the story.
1: On February 28, 1998, one of the world's oldest and most respected medical journals, The Lancet, published a study by a group of 13 doctors led by Dr. Andrew Wakefield.
0: At the time, Dr. Andrew Wakefield was one of the medical community's leading experts on gastroenterology, the study of the digestive system. This wasn't some quack doctor writing in a gossip magazine. This was real science backed by a publication that had the highest marks of integrity.
1: When Dr. Wakefield and company's findings were published, the peer-reviewed study made a claim that there could be a link between the MMR vaccine and autism in some children.
0: The MMR vaccine administers vaccines for three diseases, measles, mumps, and rubella, all at one time. Now, the reason for the possible link was thought to be due to the fact that the vaccine was metabolized in the gut. Even though the MMR vaccine is administered as a shot, the bacteria in the gut plays a major role in how the immune system responds to it.
1: It was theorized that the gut being connected to the brain could be the cause of the developmental regression, known today as autism, in some children. Admittedly, that's an oversimplification of the science, but that's the general idea.
0: For the doctors and scientists that could understand the entire study, some began to question the information presented. Some specifics of Dr. Wakefield's data clashed with a massive 14-year study on the MMR vaccine that concluded in March of 1998, just after Wakefield's study was published. Other critics took issue with the study's tiny sample size, which included only
1: 12 children. The scrutiny continued from public health officials, journalists, and of course, the drug companies.
0: All of whom had stakes in protecting the status quo of vaccine safety.
1: But a set of people that didn't question the findings were the thousands of parents looking for answers as to why their children had developed autism.
0: Parents from all around the world began to gather online, sharing information, stories, theories, and possible routes for legal action against MMR vaccine manufacturers. With the Dr. Wakefield study in their virtual hands, Concerned parents sailed into the 21st century determined to prove that vaccines were unsafe.
1: But another national tragedy was on the horizon. One much more shocking and tangible than even the worst vaccination incident. <laughs> AP Network News. I'm Rita Foley. A plane apparently has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. We go live now to New York and our Robin Walensky. Robin, what can you tell us? Well, Rita, uh, the plane crashed into the World Trade Center just moments ago. Tower number one. Smoke is billowing out of the building from the upper floors of Tower one. You can see the smoke for miles and miles. The plane actually seems to be... In the building, and from local news reports here in New York, people say that it's uh, chaos down there. I'm heading uh, to the scene, and eyewitnesses say that this plane was actually headed for the tower and then crashed right into the building. Of course, thousands of people work in
0: At the start of the new millennium, the threat of terrorism became the number one fear of most Western countries after the 9-11 attacks.
1: Flying planes into buildings was unheard of before it happened that day. After 9-11, governments had to quickly identify what other unique and deadly ways their enemies could attack. One of the highest threat risks identified by America's intelligence officials was biological warfare.
0: Specifically, it was theorized that if terrorists could get their hands on a sample of an eradicated disease like smallpox, they could use it
1: to quickly decimate the U.S. population. Since smallpox is all but extinct from the world, thanks in part to vaccinations, no one gets vaccinated for it anymore.
0: If no one is vaccinated, if the disease came back, it could kill millions before enough vaccinations could be manufactured to protect everyone.
1: As the government searched for a solution to combat such a plot, it was suggested to then-President Bush that every American be required to get a smallpox vaccine.
0: But as early as November 2001, the mass vaccination plan began to receive pushback from the president.
1: One of my concerns is if we were to have universal vaccination, some might lose their life. And I would be deeply concerned about a vaccination program that would uh, cause people to lose their life. Uh, I am, uh, but I'm looking at all options, all possibilities, and uh, we'll work with the smartest minds in America to develop the best strategies to how to deal with a
0: potential smallpox attack.
1: There's no question that there was a lot to weigh for President Bush, and he did weigh it over the course of a year. In the time he spent waffling back and forth, the debate raged over the safety of vaccines. If the smallpox vaccine could kill, did that mean that other vaccines could, too?
0: The smallpox vaccine debate, combined with Dr. Wakefield's Lancet study, was all fuel to the fire of debate about vaccine safety. On one hand is Bush's desire to counter a potentially catastrophic weapon in the arsenal of America's foes. On the other is the knowledge that for a small number of Americans, the smallpox shots could prove fatal. Studies from the 1960s indicate for perhaps a dozen in every one million vaccinations, the side effects will be life-threatening, which is why Bush plans a major education campaign to go along with the voluntary vaccinations he'll propose for all Americans.
1: By late 2002, President Bush came to a decision. He ordered that all military personnel get vaccinated against smallpox, including himself as commander-in-chief. Vaccination remained voluntary for everyone else, but he strongly encouraged medical professionals to get the shot.
0: But even with a voluntary program, there were a lot of questions and concerns. The problem is, who compensates you if you get sick from getting the vaccine? Its potential side effects are more dangerous than from any other vaccine given in the U.S. Health experts think one or two people out of every million who get it will die. Smallpox no longer exists in nature, But President Bush is setting up the vaccination program as a hedge against its use by terrorists. The Homeland Security Act explicitly bars most lawsuits. But Health Secretary Tommy Thompson says he's open to the idea of a compensation fund. People who get shots on the job might be eligible for workman's comp, but people who catch it from somebody else would be pretty much out in the cold. Larry Brown, Washington.
1: Beyond money, with a voluntary program in place, medical professionals had to determine if they were or were not going to participate. Doctors and nurses have mixed reactions to the vaccine's risks. Some, like Richmond, Virginia's Dr. Richard Wenzel, say the risks of transmitting the disease to patients is too high. His hospital won't vaccinate employees. Others are happy to participate in the program. Dr. J.D. Miller of Appalachian Regional Healthcare says many employees in his system are anxious to be vaccinated.
0: By this point, one would think there would be no debate among medical professionals about the safety of getting a vaccine.
1: You'd think so, but things got pretty divided. The guarantee that some people who got the smallpox vaccine would die had some doctors refusing to expose their staffs to such a risk.
0: The arguments on both sides were fierce, but they were short-lived. Eventually, the smallpox threat faded from the public consciousness, and the debate to vaccinate or not vaccinate fizzled, with most opting not to take the vaccine.
1: But drug companies now had a full-blown crisis on their hands, as the public's faith in the safety of vaccines kept dwindling. By the late 2000s, though, vaccine manufacturers got some major wind in their sails on their quest for world vaccination.
0: After over a decade of dodging accusations of fraud relating to their 1998 Lancet article, Professor Walker Smith and Dr. Wakefield were finally backed into a corner in the late 2000s. The General Medical Council, or GMC, which oversees medical licenses in the U.K., opened an investigation into Wakefield and Walker Smith's study on the MMR vaccine and autism.
1: The GMC's probe unearthed that not only did Dr. Wakefield cherry-pick and fabricate data, but he and Professor Walker Smith were also aware that some of the children in their study were preparing to sue manufacturers of the MMR vaccine.
0: At the end of the GMC's investigation in January 2010, They concluded that Dr. Wakefield and Professor Walker Smith had a serious conflict of interest and acted unethically when doing their research for the 1998 Lancet article.
1: The GMC decided to strip Dr. Wakefield and Professor Walker Smith of their licenses. Later in 2010, the Lancet decided to retract their study. This was the first time they had ever retracted an article in the publication's over 150-year history.
0: The one-two blows of having the study redacted and the two men leading the study having their licenses revoked began to put the perception in people's minds that there really was no connection between vaccines and autism.
1: But the story doesn't end there. Walker Smith, feeling that the GMC had punished him too harshly, took his case to the high court. In 2012, he won a judgment by the high court reinstating his license. The judge ruled that the GMC acted unlawfully in stripping away Walker Smith's license.
0: Many doctors and scientists still dispute Wakefield and Walker Smith's study, but there are plenty of people who do believe the results. To this day, concerned parents still cite the 1998 study to back up their arguments against vaccine safety.
1: Since losing his license in 2010, Andrew Wakefield himself has tried to maintain an image in the media as an advocate for vaccine investigation by publicly defending his 1998 study.
0: If you look at the fact that the number of vaccinations has gone down since 2010, Andrew Wakefield seems to be making a convincing enough argument to stop some parents from vaccinating their children.
1: The choice for some parents not to vaccinate their children, based on the 1998 Wakefield study, or for other reasons, seems to have had some consequences.
0: The risk going to Disneyland is low risk. It is safe to go to Disneyland if you have your vaccinations, you're protected. In February of 2015, there was an outbreak of measles in California traced back to the happiest place on Earth. It dominated the airwaves and caused lawmakers in the Golden State to begin restricting reasons parents could opt out of mandatory vaccinations.
1: Disneyland wasn't the only place outbreaks happened in 2015, but the high-profile location brought attention to the importance of vaccination for many around the country and world.
0: There is currently no federal law mandating vaccinations for children but every state in the union requires mandatory vaccination for any child that wants to attend public school. All 50 states have opt-out policies for medical reasons. 47 allow exemptions for religious reasons, and 17 will let you sidestep due to philosophical
1: reasons. The exemptions for religious and philosophical reasons are coming under more and more scrutiny, as outbreaks of diseases like the mumps and measles become more and more common across the U.S.
0: In state houses across the country, there are lobbying forces trying to pass laws to make vaccination mandatory for every child. If they manage to do so, there will surely be a showdown at the Supreme Court to settle the matter for the next generation.
1: There may be a history of health risks and adverse reactions associated with vaccines, but given the alternative of widespread disease and death, most would agree that the reward outweighs the risk.
0: Well, the fact that the Western world has seen an end to many deadly diseases because of mass vaccination would seem to prove that true.
1: The official story holds that while there is a risk of adverse reactions, vaccines are generally safe and effective. But that's not the most interesting story, and maybe not the true story.
0: There are countless conspiracy theories about vaccines, what's inside of them, who's behind them, and to what end. The only thing conspiracy theorists seem to agree on is that there is definitely some sort of nefarious agenda behind vaccination.
1: Next week, we'll look at three of the most popular theories about the true purpose of vaccines. Conspiracy theory number one. Vaccines contain hidden chemicals meant to control the world population. We talked
0: about the cutter incident. If active polio could have been injected into children without anyone catching it, Could that have been a test run for an evil plot to put other
1: chemicals in vaccines for population control? Conspiracy theory number two. Drug companies are working in cahoots with the U.S. government to make vaccines mandatory by law in order to maximize profits.
0: This one is pretty popular because of the creation of the vaccine court in 1986. Big Pharma always seems to distance itself from liability for vaccine injury.
1: Conspiracy theory number three, vaccines don't work, and herd immunity is a lie.
0: A lot of people gravitate toward this theory for one major reason, booster shots. If vaccines work as well as the authorities preach, then why are booster shots needed? How can herd immunity be as effective as they say?
1: It doesn't always matter which explanation is the most likely. People will cling to whatever story is the most intriguing, even if it doesn't make sense.
0: And these theories all get pretty intriguing. They all tie back to a few suspicious details. Vaccine safety incidents, government protections for vaccine makers, mandatory vaccinations by law, and well-constructed propaganda.
1: We'll discuss the details next week.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best
1: way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: Join us next week as we take a second look at vaccines.
1: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story.
0: And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Sammy Sorsoza and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.